Welcome to the Wildlife Experience. Uh, this is your host, Andrew Austin. All right, guys. Well, I hope everybody is uh, having a good year and is out there enjoying the natural world and uh, just getting outdoors and and uh, you know pursuing those adventures and whatever that means to you, hunting, fishing, herping, birding, botanizing, hiking. Um, it's been kind of a slow, you know, recent few months for me. We had a really bad drought here in Texas. So I wasn't doing a whole lot over the past month or so. Um, this time of year for my job, I'm making a lot of duck calls, getting ready for hunting season. Um, and, you know, usually I would be fishing a lot more because there's not really much else to do. Um, but we had a really bad drought, so fishing kind of sucked. Um, a lot of the creeks were dry. But, uh, yeah, so I've been just uh, kind of taking it easy. Um, I've been, uh, excuse me. Have a still have a cough right now, and I was gonna try to edit this stuff out, but I'm just gonna leave it in. Just bear with me. Um, what was I saying? Oh yeah, I've been connecting a lot more with uh, cultural stuff lately, um, and I'm not gonna go too far into details right now. But um, I've always known since I was a kid that we were my family on my dad's side um, are descendants of uh, Lipan Apaches, and my side of the family has not been very culturally connected. Um, really the only person I knew growing up was my great uncle who practiced indigenous culture. Um, like as a kid, I would go over there and he'd be, you know, playing drums and, you know, singing in Apache and you know, he burned sage and he made a lot of different really cool art uh, necklaces and actually learned how to do uh, like beaded uh, native American necklaces from him. And I used to make those when I was a kid. Uh, but aside from that, I, you know, been pretty distant from the culture, but I've decided, um, and I felt very strongly in my heart to, to reconnect. And so I've traveled down to where, um, that, that part of my family is from, which is in Brackettville, Texas. It's kind of this region of Southwest Texas where the Lipan Apaches, um, are from and, uh, attended a sweat lodge ceremony and, you know, had a really good experience. And <clears throat> there's a lot of really cool stuff going on with my family's tribe. Uh, so anyway, that's what I've been up to lately. Um, haven't been thinking a whole lot about ecology in general. I've been kind of consumed um, and fascinated with my family's culture and sort of Native American um, history and culture in general, um, trying to learn as much as I can and, and really find um, a genuine connection um, with the culture. Um, so that's kind of what I've been up to. Um, anyway, so for this episode, I have my buddy Keith on. He was on a long time ago. It was like episode six or so. Um, he's a true bird nerd. Um, always a lot of fun talking to Keith and, um, I do, I help him out with some of his research and he's doing his PhD. We'll talk a lot about that. And we just ramble on for about an hour and a half about random stuff. Um, pretty laid back. I just kind of wanted to do something easy since I haven't recorded in a while, but, uh, I think you guys will enjoy it. Um, so now I bring you Keith and Dringa. All right, let's just dive right in, man. What have you been up to? Uh, what haven't I been up to? Um, so I guess since the last time you were out in the field with us, um, I started my prelims, which, or I guess I technically start them tomorrow, but I've been studying for prelims nonstop. Okay. Um, and prelim exams are uh, essentially like the equivalent of taking your, your medical boards when you're in residency. 
So I have five written exams that are each 24 hours a piece. And then I have one big oral exam with this committee, my committee that decides, you know, I'm going to stand in front of them for four or five hours and they're going to decide whether or not I have the knowledge and if I'm at the right point to even get my my doctoral degree. So it's so been this interesting. Is like one of the most important series of tests in a PhD program. Yeah, it is the most important. Okay. Um, like you have your defense, but by the end of that, you're defending the knowledge that you already have and that you've gained um, and like what you found. And then with your prelims, it's testing the knowledge of what other people have found. And if you have the basis and the background to even be doing the research that you're doing. Um, and in a lot of programs, you don't even start your dissertation research until after you pass your prelims. It's just ecology does not work on short time scales. <laughs> so, well, yeah, it's. <clears throat> you came on was like two years ago. And yeah, a lot it was right happened. when I started. Yeah. How is it? Like now, you know, since we last talked, what is your general feeling of your experience in, in grad school and doing a PhD? I feel like when we last talked, I was so much more, more hopeful about my future. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Um, no, I think, I think there's like an aging process that you, that you kind of get like forced through in a, in a grad program. Um, where two years ago, I think I was really excited just starting. I think it was like three months into my program, if I remember. And now that I'm three years in, it's like, oh. Um, so I guess since then, my dissertation topic has completely changed. I'm not necessarily interested in microbiota of birds along urban rural gradients. Uh, the more I did on that project, the worse and worse my mental health became. And now I'm working on a project looking at um, ecotoxins or these toxic pollutants that um, are put off into the environment and focusing on how they relate to different life history strategies in birds, uh, whether there's any health correlates between them and like body condition, um, disease susceptibility, uh, and whether or not ecotoxins like microplastics and heavy metals um, and stuff like PFOS, which are those forever chemicals that everyone is talking about in the news, yep. um, looking at all of those and seeing if they're correlated with each other and if in combination they're causing greater, um, lesser uh, health effects, Right, which is way more interesting. <laughs> like. I'm I'm sorry, but like butt swabbing birds along urban rural gradients is it's for somebody, but that somebody is not for me. <laughs> now you're out in the marsh catching rails. A lot more. Yeah, fun. equally, uh, equally painful. At um, least the environment is cool. I I love the salt marsh. Yeah, it's just it's such a unique place to do field work. Um so I guess I guess I should probably go into an explanation of like what yeah, specifically yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um, so essentially, I'm looking to see these microplastic abundances uh, in clapper rails, which are this big chicken-like bird. Some people call them marsh hens. Um, they're really secretive. 
And they are a really great indicator species on, on the Gulf Coast because they have super small habitat sizes. Uh, their home range is less than a hectare, um, sometimes even less than half a hectare. And at least on the Texas coast and one of my field sites particularly, um, it is in the, in the Northern Hemisphere and in the United States, North America, uh, the most microplastic polluted um, stretch of shoreline that we've been able to detect. And that's with primary microplastics, which are the ones that we're actually producing to turn into other plastic products. So it's a really interesting area, right? You have these declining salt marshes that are great filters for pollutants in the environment, and then these birds that are living there. And everybody studies the effect of salt marshes on the environment, but they don't study the organisms in the salt marsh right. to see if you know the salt marsh specialists are going to be affected in any way by this filtration process, right? So as these toxins, as these pollutants accumulate in the salt marsh, we know that they're being taken out of the systems around them and, you know, decreasing the risk of the, you know, the coastal environment or the, the coastal prairie environment, but not necessarily decreasing the risk to salt marsh species. They're just taking so, the brunt, they're like taking the full force of it. <laughs> yeah. And that's something that, um, I think most salt marsh species, this is like the eternal optimist in me, um, they are really, really resilient, right? They've adapted to deal with hurricanes. They've adapted to deal with wildfires. Um, they're really disturbing. Salt. <laughs> yeah, salt. Like they have all of these adaptations to get rid of, you know, concentrated salt and the lack of fresh water. Um, so like, yeah, when we think about salt marsh, animals you would expect them to be really resilient um and so i think it's a really good place to study the effects of these pollutants as well because you have these resilient these resilient birds these resilient mammals um and you're able to get like the full range of effects right whereas if i was you know introducing pfos or mercury into a very small songbird or actually let's be real into like a massive eagle or a condor uh, the amount of circulating mercury in an eagle or in a condor would kill them far sooner than it would kill a duck or a rail because they're just adapted to having that many um, heavy metals accumulate or pollutants accumulate in their environment. Right. It's a real shame. You know, our salt marshes are such an incredible ecosystem. Um, and we have some great salt marshes still on the Texas coast, but uh, they're they're not um what they once were um we got you know refineries lining our coastlines we have all this industrial infrastructure we've um, manipulated wetlands in various ways um like some of your sites are really representative of what a much of the texas coast looked like yeah which yeah. is why i like going out there i love the sites where we where you sample for rails and then the process of catching the rails. While that's not, <laughs> you don't get into research for the fun of catching animals, but it is a nice, it is a, a, a part of it. That's really enjoyable. I mean, I totally agree with you that you shouldn't get into research <laughs> to catch animals. Yeah. Um, but it's I, a privilege. we think, yeah, it's, it's absolutely a privilege and it's, 
the biggest benefit to the job is, uh, you know, kind of embracing the naturalist that I wanted to be as a kid, you know, embracing that Steve Irwin mentality of like, I'm going to go out and have a one-on-one direct interaction with this animal. Yeah. Um, and the fact that now I can do it for my job and do it in a way that is one legal, because especially with birds and I work with birds, um, you're really not allowed to handle any of them um, without permits. And then two, uh, in a way that's actually contributing to research, contributing to science and protecting that species in the long run. Right. So I just, it takes me back to being a kid and being outside and having these big dreams of being like Steve Irwin. Yeah. And I'll say, I think he probably would have been a lot more successful than I would, than I am currently. Uh, well, he wasn't much of a bird rails. guy. He wasn't much of a bird he guy. Wasn't. It's kind of a shame. It, thinking back, I, I, I was watching some of uh, his old videos on YouTube, and uh, he was he was pretty dead set on the big, the big scary stuff, uh, the highly venomous stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, he he loved all of wildlife and nature. He like contributed a lot to land conservation and all that sort of stuff um always cracks me up when like older generation biologists talk crap on steve saying like the only people he inspired are like wannabe steve Irwins that want to just catch snakes and crocodiles but they're not right <laughs> like there's so many biologists that do really meaningful work because of steve Irwin. exactly yeah. and i think I mean, just when you think about these old school biologists and there's definitely a few individuals I'm picturing here. So take that as you will. Um, They're so dead set in their ways. Like you have to study ecology in this exact way. You have to be doing these exact methods. You have to be modeling things in this exact way. And I think this newer generation of ecologists that's coming up, um, we're the ones that have grown up in this kind of climate panic where we're like, we're highly, highly aware of the ecosystem and what's going on around us, even since we were kids. And so having a figure to look up to like Steve Irwin, Jeff Corwin, all these people who are like really advocating for the environment at such a pivotal time when we were growing up, I don't know. It's, I can't imagine that the bad outweighs the good there, right? There's no, there's no I way. I feel like, yeah. If you could and quantify so this stuff. About that. Yeah. If you could quantify, somehow quantify the cumulative uh, impacts, positive impacts of Steve Irwin's influence on our generation, it would be huge, po- hugely positive. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the both of us here right now would not have happened if not for Steve Irwin. Possibly. No, I can, I can very unlikely that. Yeah, yeah, very unlikely. Yeah. It's crazy. One person can influence your life so much. I think a lot oh, of us would have found it ecology in some other way, but maybe never created a career out of it, you know? I think he was the first person that really showed me that it could be a career, right? That working with wild animals is, uh, I mean, when you say you want to work with animals as a kid, the only option that's really presented to you is to be a vet. At least when I was like, I, like when we were growing up, it was vet, you know, 
Yeah. Be a vet. Save the animals. <laughs> save animals' lives with surgery, with medicine. And then you get to Steve Irwin, you get to Jeff Corwin, the Kratt brothers, these people who are really communicating science, communicating conservation. Like, that's a totally new career that was just offered to us. And, I mean, I latched on to that, and I, I'm still there, you know? A lot of people blame Steve Irwin and those sort of wildlife personalities on the current surge of not always ethical wildlife influencers on social media and the the pursuit of viral content. Um, I don't think that's the case. I think this is a unique phenomenon where people that maybe aren't even that interested in wildlife see it as a very easy way to create a huge Instagram or a huge TikTok. I totally agree. Yeah. Um, because you look at the, first of all, Instagram and TikTok and these kind of like short-term media, like it wasn't around when, you know, when science communication in the ecological field, like when, when all of that was emerging. Right. It, yeah. Social media has just changed so much of how we view things. Yeah. And I totally agree. I think there's some incredibly, incredibly unethical wildlife influencers out there. Um, particularly anybody who's going to be catching birds by hand. Um, especially like if you're unpermitted in any situation, that's unethical because you are required to have those permits and report them. Um, but then, you know, just going in and unnecessarily chasing animals without a research purpose, um, driving them and driving them and driving them. I mean, it's, it's so frequent. Staging animals, um, you know, and acting like yeah that. holding on to an animal for hours right right like there's a difference between a snake that you cruise up right and you snap a couple pictures you do like a 30 second you know little snippet about it and really take in that snake um and then release it in the spot that you caught it right versus these people that are catching these snakes taking them places for photo shoots essentially i mean if you imagine if you were doing that with a large mammal or a small bird. Right. Like they're not going to survive. Right. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of, I think, generally speaking, in the herp community, uh, we regard snakes as more resilient to handling. And that's kind of the attraction to herps in general, as you can pick them up. But uh, people definitely get carried away. Um, and most of the really cheesy wildlife influencers I can think of are dealing with herps. <laughs> they're, the yeah. easiest way to create a huge um, TikTok, and I don't want to generalize all people because some people that move to South Florida to pursue a wildlife career are, um, are very genuinely passionate naturalists and conservationists, but I've seen this over the past like, decade. People move there specifically to create a huge TikTok and a huge Instagram, and like, I'm, I'm just really good at, at picking up on people that are full of shit uh yeah they they go out and into the everglades and they handle wildlife illegally and um they're extremely sensational with the animals they claim they're being educational but they're making a water snake out to be like this scary monster or you know or, or a cottonmouth or or an alligator or whatever it is burmese pythons mm. and uh I don't know, I'm glad I don't live in South Florida because I would 
probably be highly annoyed by what kind of goes on down there. Um, it's also yeah, and I think at this point it's really unoriginal being a South Florida wildlife influence, unless you're already like from there and like you know been doing it and like are passionate about the Everglades and the wildlife. People that just go there to seek out viral content, it's just um, it's really cheesy to me. I mean, and it's definitely the content that I just scroll right past. I'm not yeah. paying attention to it because, in all reality, I think my mindset is that I want to learn as much as I can from the natural world. Right. And, you know, the 10th time I see somebody holding a, a Nerodia, a water snake, um, and getting bitten, like flinching, wincing in pain, I'm like, what the fuck did you expect? You know, you're handling something with teeth and you're doing it for the views. Like how many times did that snake bite you before you got the, the right shot? You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I just get to a point where I scroll past so much of it. <laughs> Same. Um, I think that's... Yeah. Hmm? No, I was going to say, I think that's sort of why I like um, like your content, super educational, right? And I won't... I'm not going to plug myself here, but I do try to like have that sort of undertone of education and like, right. hey, I'm permitted, I'm a scientist for all of my stuff that I post, even though my... My following is very small. <laughs> um, you haven't. I think it's just good PhD, practice. Being in a PhD program doesn't lend itself to having the freedom to really pursuing social media. Well, no, definitely not that. And just, you know, one of those things that you learn when you do get into science and when you do get into um, like study design permit situations, there's a lot of legal that goes on behind the scenes. Like, right. like I you know, I have to have disclaimers on any time I'm right. like showing a picture of me handling a bird. Um, I have to be like, there's even some people who say like, you shouldn't be smiling in the photos. You shouldn't right. even have your face in the photos. It should just be your hand in the animal. Um, it's really dehumanizing. <laughs> I mean, but I, I totally get it. Right. Like, yeah, right. It looks like a, just a if photo the purpose. Wild. Yeah. Then it's going to be promoting this, you yeah. know, bad behavior. Um, in some senses. Um, and like I said, that's not like, that's not hard and fast. There's no hard and fast rules around there. It's really blurry still with what you can and can't share. Um, well, a lot of data wise. Yeah. You want to maintain your professional connections, you know, and if uh, you post the wrong thing that can put your career in jeopardy. Exactly. Um, or just exactly. connections that you care about aside from your career, like um, just people that you respect and you want to maintain friendships with. I struggled with that a lot, even like before I really started posting reels. Um, especially anything regarding alligators, because alligators are kind of naturally kind of sensational. Catching them is like just a naturally sensational act. And it seems mm -hmm. it's, it's a very performative thing to do and to film it and put it on Instagram. It's always been something I strayed away from. Um, I started doing it and I, you know, I feel in my heart I'm doing it for the right reasons, but I still worry that some of my connections in the kind of professional crocodilian world will be like, what is, what is Andrew doing? Like he's, he's doing the kind of shit that, uh, you know, the viral seeking wildlife <laughs> influencers do, but I think I'm pretty good at desensationalizing alligators though. I hope so. So here's, here's the one thing that I've noticed that you do differently than all of these other big alligator catching alligator hunting accounts. 
is you don't immediately start screaming and hooping and hollering when you get the alligator on, right? You're not, and then when you bring it in, you very calmly get on it, you wrap its mouth, and then you're talking about it as you're, you know, kind of like doing like a a once over looking at this right. this alligator you're talking about it and you're communicating with the neighborhood children you know the landowners um and you're talking to your to your audience on on social media right so you have like these kind of multifaceted outlets i guess right is the best way to talk about it um to hear it <laughs> but you're not like you're not saying they're screaming and going this was a danger to the neighborhood <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah that's definitely something i avoid um, i'm also not not just alligators are uh they're not that big of a deal you know no uh, oh my gosh they're, they're rather <laughs> harmless <laughs> um and catching them isn't that big of a deal now how i catch them it's you know, in, in the croc world, one thing I've realized is uh, I've caught crocs and alligators with people in academia. I've caught crocs with researchers in various places. I've caught crocs and alligators with uh, people that worked in parks. Um, and I learned how to catch alligators in a park. And we don't necessarily catch them the same way as someone in a zoo or in, uh, in academia would. Um, kind of the alligator capture protocols are different. Like, you know, how I taped them up with my hands, like close the jaws. Some people view that as um, the wrong way to catch an alligator, the unsafe way. But for me, I feel the most comfortable doing it that way. So I mm-hmm. kind of just stick stick to it. But like if I'm with other people and people are very opinionated about how to catch crocodilians. Um, that's one thing I realized. Um, oh, if you think they're opinionated about crocodilians, just wait till you get to the bird world. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, birds... <laughs> That's a whole nother deal. Um, but yeah, social media, it, <clears throat> there's, I, I am a firm believer that uh, you can do a lot of good with social media. I mean, I see, I, I just see it happening. Like that guy, Kyle Lieberger from Alabama, mm-hmm. he's inspiring mm-hmm. literally millions of people on like a weekly basis uh, talking about grassland conservation. And yeah, absolutely. People are, literally are ripping up their their non-native garden plants and planting natives because they yeah, want to actually uh, another phd student in uh, not my program but um an adjacent program to the one i'm in here at a and um she just completely bulldozed her yard you know did a burn on whatever grass was left over and replanted native seeds and like this this winter alone she's had like three bird species and you're could we work with birds so like this is my that's my metric <laughs> yeah yeah three bird species that um are rarely recorded in the county you know and i mean it took one year of developing and growing and it's been great you know yeah, it's pretty it's she doesn't have to water her yard anymore <laughs> did she uh was she inspired to do that from like a social media influencer or just um i'm not sure um i think in a sense yes uh her husband is in like rangeland management so i think he's obviously working in there um but it's such a cool unique way i guess um 
to communicate that. And I think yeah. like social media and just like media outlets in general are such a great way to disseminate research and to share everything with the public and just be like, hey, we are aware of a problem. Here's another problem. Let's right. see how we can fix it together. Right. Here are steps that you can take to help with this. You know? Right. Yeah, people aren't watching uh like cable TV anymore. <laughs> Everybody's on their phones. You no, know? and I think we're constantly in need of like I don't want to say validation, but yeah, validation where like you're doing something good. And if you right. care for the environment, here are some steps that you can take easy steps or maybe really drastic steps like changing your entire yard to you know a native grassland um but there are steps that you can take and people showing how accessible that is on social media it's so good like there's so much good that can be done but there's also a lot of damage caused by like the bad influencers so that's mm. part of the reason why i started leaning into it more it's because i get so frustrated by all the sensational bullshit it like clicked on like a competitive switch in my head. I'm like, I wish people like me and you would get that sort of, you know, audience and that sort of influence. And rather than the, than this person that doesn't actually care about conservation, you know? Well, in a way it's because we refuse to be sensational. <laughs> Partly. You know? And we're, you know, we're very much more calculated in what we post because we want to maintain our professional networks. Um, well, so I won't say I won't say I haven't been arm wavy on social media, right? I did have sort of a semi-viral post a while back um, that got like I don't know a couple hundred shares on Facebook okay. and maybe a thousand, two thousand likes or whatever, um, which is very viral for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, it was a little bit arm wavy. It was it was a clapper rail that I had. Um, that I had captured. And when I pumped its stomach very safely, very humanely, um, I ended up recovering about 300 pieces of plastic. Um, and this is a bird that was eating um, primarily fiddler crabs. And fiddler crabs, you know, they're, they're going to be gleaning off of everything. They're going to be cleaning plastics. And this was a habitat that had a ton of fishermen. So they would discard their line, which is primarily plastic polymers. And then in the salt marsh, as it's being manipulated by fiddler crabs, by, you know, the UV radiation from the sun, it's breaking apart into like small pieces. Um, and you can stain it and it'll glow under UV light. So looking at that, I was able to count over 300 pieces. And I was like, this is bad news. This is bad. Um and it got shared all over the place. And going back and looking at that, I think I prematurely said, hey, this is bad. Because we really don't know what's going on and if it is bad. Right? right? Like, it can't be good. <laughs> maybe it's just inert. You know, maybe yeah. it really isn't affecting the bird. I've always wondered that, you know, helping out with your research, you know, looking at microplastics in the rails. And just in general, hearing more and more about microplastics. And... uh it it always seems as if the birds are healthy. Um, of course, that doesn't, you know, their appearance doesn't always tell the full picture. Um, mm -hmm. But I've always wondered if it's possible that the, uh, that, you know, microplastics in particular aren't, possibly aren't bad. I guess that's like an optimistic thing to hope. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's also not a completely insane idea. 
yeah. right? Because we've been eating plastic. For yeah, a that's long another time. thing. Like, how is it affecting us? Is it more subtle effects that takes a long time? You mm-hmm. know, or affects yeah, so the systems in the body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so we're totally still trying to figure that out. Um, and that's actually, I mean, not to give too much away, but a little spoiler for maybe a paper I'm working on. Um, is looking at whether or not we can even claim causality, right? Between like, you're eating a lot of microplastics and you're having these health effects. And there's a lot of papers that'll just be like, they're correlated, microplastics cause this. And it's that classic, you know, causation does not equal, or correlation does not equal causation. Yeah. So um, I'm really interested in maybe doing a paper that um, reviews a lot of that, a lot of those studies and figures out, hey, is there coherency here, right? Right. If we do many, many studies, and if we can repeat these studies in any way, are we actually seeing these trends, or is this a one-off, or is this, you know, constraining our data to fit what we want? Um, I'm not going to say that doesn't happen in science. Like, that's yeah. pretty, like, yeah, you, you can ma- make the data say what you want. You um, know, people going through a master's program or maybe a PhD, and they're barely making it to the finish line and kind of just doing what they have to. <laughs> to, to yeah. Get... And it's totally not lying. And that's right, what I yeah. want to like put out there yeah. is you can definitely share your data and it's great that you share your data. It's just how you interpret um, it perhaps. And it's how you interpret it and being very aware of the scope. Right. Right. Yeah. So like my study on clapper rails, which we need to get back to catching yeah. them because yeah, yes. it's a visual that's, that it's yes. so much fun. <laughs> Um, but like my data on Clapper Rails is probably not going to be able to be extrapolated much beyond Clapper Rails in Texas. And I have to be very aware of how I word that, how I say that. Right. Because otherwise, I don't want to over-exaggerate the impact of my research. I think it's cool research, but I'm biased. Right. So I don't want to, I don't want to be that excited and, you know, over-interpret it and over-extrapolate it to you know, the general public. Right. Um, And yeah, when we talk about microplastics, I mean, we know that they're probably not good. There's no way we know that there's all of these negative correlates, right? Right. Um, But I don't think we're quite at the point where we can say they're actually causing anything. Right. Um, At least for, you know, in the bird world, we can't, we really don't have enough data to be like they're causing declines or they're causing an immune response. Um, But we can say their immune responses are correlated with them. So I guess the problem could be, you know, if uh, microplastics increase in these ecosystems, it can hit a threshold and then you have a serious problem for the biodiversity there. Exactly. Exactly. Um, So really figuring out where those thresholds are. That is a huge priority. Um, and another thing is that plastics are like pretty, like they're going to be around for a while. They don't biodegrade. And if they do biodegrade, it's into stuff that we do know is very harmful. So if you get to a point where you're like, oh, this isn't relevant right now, 10 years to 15 years down the line, all the plastic that you're studying is still going to be there. Plus right. anything that's been produced and added to it in the 10 or 15 years that you waited. So it's definitely, um, it's definitely imperative to study plastics. Yes. It's 
a pollutant that we're going to have more and more and more of no matter what. Um, I just don't know really where we're at with the data to say it's extremely negative or it's relatively inert, but might right. cause these things. Right. One one um, thing uh, going out with you learning more about the plastics issue is, um, you know, we go into this like pristine cord grass, salt marsh. And in my head, I'm like, oh, this is a pristine ecosystem. But then, then you start lavaging these birds and they're all full of plastic. <laughs> so they, they all are, yeah. have human disturbance, you know, hidden, hidden within them. Yes. Um, and that's actually pretty consistent with the data, right? So I think in general, when, when people are looking for plastic consumption in birds, um, the number is around 80% are positive for plastic consumption, which is, I mean, pretty, like that's, it's high, but it's not surprising. Right. I mean, for humans, it's 100%. Um, for rainwater, it's about 100%, you know? So you have these, like these trends, like macroplastics are everywhere. We're breathing them in right now. We're wearing them. They're on our skin. They're under our fingernails. They're spread like crazy. They're spread essentially like germs. And so one of the scarier statistics that I like to share with people, um, on average, when you're looking at coastlines, you can see macroplastics. You can see these large pieces of plastic that are just polluted, right? So water bottles, um, tarps are a really big one fishing line, all of that stuff. You're going to see that on, on the shoreline. Um, but globally, and on average, those only make up about 15% of the microplastic pollution or the plastic pollution on that shoreline. So we might be seeing, you know, oh, one water bottle here, one there. That's not too bad. But that's 15%. The tip of, of the iceberg. Yeah, that's the tip of the iceberg. Um, 85% of the micro of the plastic pollution by weight is microplastics, and it's going to be not easily visible. How do you rank uh, plastic pollution in general on the all the threats to biodiversity? Where do you rank it, like versus Ooh. habitat loss and you know changing climates and um, yeah, where do you rank plastics? I guess we, you know, we've talked mm. about how we don't know the. Can I expand this out yes. from plastics? Yeah, so I think plastics yeah, fall within. Yeah. yeah, I think plastics fall within this broader field of pollution and toxicology, right? And we're talking about environmental toxicology or ecotoxicology. There's a bigger effect here, right? So, um, I would say it's in the big five, yeah. right? Climate change, habitat loss, um, urbanization, which could also be classified as habitat loss in some ways, um, pollution and exploitation. Right. Over, over harvesting and mm -hmm. it's a hard to, um, with, with the reason I always talk mainly about habitat loss is because it's a lot easier for people to understand because it's a very clear impact. Yes. Yeah. Well, like and my, it has a lot of drivers, right? So right. 
you know, I ranked those five things in the order that like I can see them um, affecting everything. So you think climate over habitat loss for biodiversity? But I mean, here's the here's the catch twenty two. We're all intertwined. Climate change is yeah, climate change is causing habitat loss. Right. Yeah. And habitat loss and urbanization are accelerating climate change. Right. So they're all intertwined. We're all interconnected. And yeah. really, what it comes down to is like. You know, there's five drivers of this mass extinction. And that's where we're at. I mean, and that's, it's so much more than five, but those are five drivers that I can big, see. Yeah, big five. A lot of people don't understand uh, just how much we're losing at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, it can seem to some people like alarmist or whatever. Um, but the fact remains, we are losing species rapidly. And we're losing habitat rapidly. And yeah. So actually, this brings up a great point um, that just right before we started talking, actually, I was in a seminar with um, Dr. Chelsea Woods from uh, University of Washington. And she just had a paper come out uh, back in January that was looking at um, parasites in fishes uh, basically over the past century in the Puget Sound. And she found that we're losing, in the Puget Sound at least, we're losing parasites at a rate of about 11% per decade, which is about twice as much as we're losing birds and mammals and fishes um, globally. And that's big, right? I don't know. Yeah. So we can be really concerned about these birds and these mammals and these fishes. We can be really concerned about these, you know, big vertebrates. Um, but no one's really talking about this, like the stuff that we don't see that we're losing. Right. That the has internal parasites. Has the effects on other species. Exactly. Yeah. And if we lose these parasites, we're completely destructuring the dynamics of the ecosystem. Just it's hard to uh, hard to use a. A, a nematode as a flagship conservation species. <laughs> oh, no one will ever be successful there. I'm sorry. Nematodes are boring. Yeah. I mean, they're not boring. They're super, super cool. Yeah. But you look at it and you can't interact with it. You can't see it like you can interact with, you know, an elephant or a panda, you know? And that's why we do have these flagship species. Yeah. I'm always, I'm always critical of, uh, um, you know, species specific conservation. And it seems always seems very narrow minded. And I always like looking at conservation from like the ecosystem perspective, but mm -hmm. you really, you do need some mascots, you know, for those ecosystems. And that's more what it's about picking. I up. mean, like, yeah. And it's kind of a sad thing to say that so much of that has to do with economy and funding and, right. you know, stakeholder interests, right. If the public isn't interested in like oh, I mean like who are you how are you going to sell um to the public we should be saving our parasites <laughs> I mean no one's going to get behind that but most if people you assume say, we need to get rid of the parasites <laughs> exactly exactly but if you say hey we need to save our fishes because this is a huge fishery then a component of that has to be preserving the biodiversity that allows for these, you know, 
um, these parasitic or these commensal relationships to exist in the environment. Yeah. I mean, and that's taking that more ecosystem or like functional approach to, to conservation. I guess some people would, would wonder why even look at parasites and why even, uh, study their decline. And I guess, a, a easy way to address that is looking at, you know, species like that, it can tell you br- the broader picture of what's going on in an ecosystem. You know, if you're, if you're losing, uh, you know, a, more obscure organisms like that. Mm-hmm. You know? So these really highly specialist organisms. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so in some cases we call them bioindicator species right. or bioindicative species. Um, that's like my clapper rails are a great example of that. Um, so for ecotoxins, we want to look for, um, at least on the Texas coast, these really long-term ecotoxins like microplastics, where they're in the environment for a long time, or PFAS, where they're in the environment for a long time, mercury in the environment for a long time. We want to like look at species that are going to be there for a long time. Um, and by a long time, I mean like five to 10 years or like within the lifespan of an individual, they're not moving too far. Right. So Al- all of the exposure. Alligators are good mm-hmm. for this. Right. Alligators are great for, for this. All of the exposure that they're getting is within a really constrained area. So you can reasonably say, oh, so this clapper rail that I found 300 pieces of plastic in, we would reasonably assume that it ate those 300 pieces of plastic somewhere around the area that we caught it. Right. Um, and that, you know, it's a really cool way to kind of monitor what's going on in the environment, but to also um, kind of do a deeper dive into these species uh, that are really not frequently studied. I mean, even alligators are really underrepresented right. in the literature. Right. Which is surprising. So, yeah. And I think that's what really drew me going full circle moment. Um, that drew me to like why I wanted to go into ecology um, is to really like interact with these animals and see these relationships that a lot of other people don't see. It's like, I think back to my favorite episodes of early Animal Planet or like Steve Irwin. He's it's like it's when they're going out, they're trying to find something really rare, and they're trying to study something really rare, um, and like that just captivated me. And yeah. so now, I'm working with rails. Which, if you ask any ornithologist, they're going to probably agree with me and say, for North American ornithology, rails are the last frontier. Rails and night jars. Right? Night jars, huh? Man, I would think people would be interested in night jars. Well, the reason why is because they're so hard to catch. Oh, okay. Right? Rails and night jars, super hard to catch. I got you. Um, they're nocturnal. So, like, I can set up a ton of mist nets. Yeah, well, for night jars, I mean, they're nocturnal and they don't have predictable flight patterns, right? So, like, owls will come back to the same cavity every day and roost during the day or to the same branch. Or you can use um, prey or playback to bring them in. But a lot of night jars, that's just not as effective. Right. Um, so it's a it's a really cool like 
I feel like I'm always on the cutting edge. Like we're always learning something new with my data. Um, so like right now it's just been a ton of troubleshooting how to catch them, um, which I know Andrew, you have firsthand experience with. I was there from the <laughs> beginning of uh, your trials. <laughs> yeah. The first time I, I went out there was, was tough. We were still dra two. doing drag lines. Yes. Yeah. Um, Drag lines, by the way, super effective for catching some rail species, just not clappers. Clappers just, you know, they they pick up and they keep flying. <laughs> um, right over your head. <laughs> yep, right over our heads. And so now we've moved on to using mist nets like we would with um, passerines, doing targeted playback, and having these birds essentially run into the net and very briefly tangle their legs or jump into the net and get caught um, and I mean, they're typically, if you don't get to them within five to 10 seconds, they're out of the net and running the other direction. So we lay in the marsh covered in mud, covered in mosquitoes, sometimes sinking a little bit, um, waiting for these birds to run in and it can take up to an hour for them to get really responsive sometimes. Um, and that's just like not effective time management. <laughs> so doing some troubleshooting um and maybe you have some people actually i haven't even asked you about this decoys like decoy right. makers yeah i have no idea i want to try <laughs> decoys and i want to try um, a couple different methods right so walk-in traps like have a hearts or like um like mammal traps because when you like we've learned a lot about rails and they act like small mammals so if we put a decoy into a walk-in trap with um, with audio tapes, you know, playing, <clears throat> I bet we could get it to go into the walk-in trap and set it off. Yeah. The other is um, what are called noose carpets, which are essentially two-way nooses. Um, so a slip knot um, that acts as the same purpose as the mist net, right? You want them to get their foot caught in this noose as they're running toward their uh, their either their audio target or their decoy target. And it holds them in place for sometimes less than five seconds. But if that five seconds is enough for you to jump up and get your hands safely on the bird, you can cut that noose away and you've captured your bird with relatively little stress. Right. Um, so that's been interesting just like testing all these different methods but right now i really need someone who knows how to make decoys because i probably, suck at it probably the easiest thing to do would be to do a sort of silhouette type decoy out of cardboard mm. where, you know you trace out the shape of the side profile of a rail because that's how a lot of goose hunters um uh, that's the type of decoy that a lot of goose hunters use because you can get a lot of volume and like depending on where the bird flies in, like they're going to see the silhouettes. Um, that'd be a cheap, a cheap way to do it. If you can trace out a good side profile of a rail and then you'd have to, you know, get the color. It's like some paint on there, I guess. Um, so my, my only, I guess the only thing that's so hard with that is that it's going into the salt marsh and it's going to get flooded, right? It's going to get wet. That maybe use um, a different material. I, yeah. I, I, so I don't like, know about a full body. That might be a, quite a ordeal getting a full body rail. Uh, I mean, I was thinking paper mache and like oh, lacquering man. it or putting a varnish or, on it. 
or foam <laughs> carving foam oh i hadn't even oh but andrew what is foam oh golly <laughs> plastics just go pollute the marsh even more <laughs> oh i mean to I be know. fair we're out there with all of our like plastic clothing and plastic materials to like sample the birds with so i get it um <laughs> it just it's so like knife to the heart counterintuitive knowing like <clears throat> damn it i have to bring plastic out here i wonder how much uh total plastic you've contributed to the marsh <laughs> Falling off i don't want to think about that number <laughs> i hope it's less than average yeah but i'm going into areas where fishermen don't yeah so and i've lost a shoe or two i've lost two two boots it happens that are just somewhere out if anybody's out at bolivar flats fishing and they see a boot wash up it's probably mine <laughs> well at least we know for sure that overall you're having a net positive effect in what you're doing even if yeah. you lost the shoe out there <laughs> i'm hoping right okay. um so i like i like the idea that my research is contributing to this kind of body of knowledge that like we know that birds are consuming plastic um and i just would like to see how and where that's happening yeah. and what effects it might have based off of the other toxins in the environment or the spatial aspects of the environment um so it's been it's been pretty cool yeah it's awesome man. i've uh, really loved this project it seems because you started out um with remind me you're gonna be working purple with martins. Uh, purple martins yeah this yeah. is a lot more and interesting i love purple martins <laughs> i love purple martins but i don't i don't dislike them I'm neutral but i think rails are a lot cooler for sure yeah you just you get to a system where everything you're seeing is new to you it's so much more engaging oh dude that's that's why i run around in different areas looking for stuff you know, experience oh, yeah. ecosystems, um, new challenges. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't imagine, you know, doing what you're doing, getting old, you know, maybe it, at some point everything gets old, but. Oh, I've been, seems, I mean. Seems like a lot of fun. And I no found that the cutoff for me is three days straight. Okay. Yeah. With no birds. I see that's, that's when it starts to get old. Last time. I went out with you it was like <laughs> three weeks ago, maybe when I last went out. Yeah, I think it was about a month ago. About a month ago, and uh, we didn't do very well, but it was still great, man. Oh, getting out. We did fantastic after you after left. We caught three in a morning, so <laughs> we didn't have much luck with the birds, but like just being out there and a bunch of bird nerds, and everybody's great, and played uh, that ecology board game. At the, at the yeah, we played Wingspan. Wingspan yeah. that was really cool. Uh, yeah, it's still like an awesome experience. You get to do that for work. <laughs> I do. I get paid to do that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I get paid to get bitten by mosquitoes and <laughs> clawed up by birds, which um, this is the first time. And I think, oh, you weren't here for this. Dang it. Um, so rails, clapper rails have vestigial claws. And these aren't like bone spurs, like um, like lapwings or some plovers have. Um, right so bone spurs are like just you know bone that's protruding and forms like this little spur 
vestigial claws are, are like flexible claws that are almost digits um, or that are old digits. Anyway, so found out that one of these birds was really, really, really into it. And it got my hand good with one of these vestigial claws. And uh, I still have a scar from it. Really? From about, I mean, yeah, about a month ago. Um, got me pretty good on, on the side of my hand. A little dinosaur scar. Oh, yeah. And they act and they move like the velociraptors from Jurassic Park. I swear they modeled them after rails. Like the head movements, the calling, like throwing the head back and screaming. That is clapper rail all the way. It's got that funky long beak. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, I they're just they're awesome. Um, Do you want to talk about your aspirations to to rail hunt? Yes. So, so this is an important point here. Just because you love a species and dedicate your life to studying it, doesn't mean you don't also want to harvest and eat it. <laughs> so yes, it's going to be emotional for me. I think I'll just have to prepare you for that because we are planning to go rail hunting. There you go. Um, it's going to be kind of emotional for me because I have struggled so much just to get these birds in hand for banding, right? So currently with my research, I am catching them obviously alive, putting a USGS band on them um, because I'm a master bird bander. I, you know, I operate under bird banding permits, um, taking a whole bunch of measurements and then taking my samples and releasing them back into the habitat. And that has been such a struggle for me that when I get to the point where um, I'm wanting to do some more extensive sampling and look for toxins in different um, organs, uh, I obviously can't have these birds alive. So I'm going to be working with hunters um, and probably harvesting some myself. <laughs> I say probably because I'm an awful wing shooter. Um, it can't be very. I'm gonna. Seeing how oh they... no, they just like float up above. There's the gonna crack. be no lead distance on them. No. They're just straight up and straight down. They're slow. You get super close, but it just—it's gonna be hard for me, I think, because I it's a bird that I get so invested in and so excited <laughs> for when I can have it in hand alive, Ooh. and I've never had one dead in hand. Right. So I don't know. It'll be interesting. Oh, we'll experience it this year, hopefully. We, we got to make it happen yeah. this year. We, we tried last year. You know, last year I was really reconnecting with waterfowl hunting because it's like my job now. And mm -hmm. I hadn't hunted a whole lot in a long time. So I was really soaking it in. And I dedicated most of my weekends to chasing ducks. But uh, I'm going to be a little more balanced this hunting season. A lot more squirrel hunting and rail hunting. And like, I want to go to West Texas and chase quail. You know, just oh, do like, remember how I that will idea. totally do that with you. <laughs> I had that idea to uh, you're out to harvest every legal game bird in Texas. I want to start on oh, that. Oh, yeah. Like maybe okay. you can't do it, doing it in, an, in a season that would require a lot of dedication, but starting a species list, a life list where birds harvested would be cool. Okay. I'm still, I'm still behind this. So for the listeners out there who we have not talked about this idea with, do you want to explain our idea for like a joint hunting slash cooking show, like a meat eater style show? Yeah, you can. Okay. Okay. 
So <laughs> I'm so excited about this. I literally think about this, like when we shoot the rails, how am I going to cook them? And I get so excited about it. So people sh should know that you have deep culinary interests too. I have deep culinary interests. Yeah. Uh, when I was 18, it was choosing between going and studying ecology biology and going to culinary school. And I've kept up cooking as a hobby and like, I, I love it. So Andrew and I were talking <laughs> about a year ago. Yeah. About a year ago. Yeah. I think when we were like trying to plan for this rail stuff, um, we were talking about like, we should like start a YouTube channel or some sort of like some sort of something and film these hunts and then film like how we cook them and go into a deep dive of like what's the best way to cook each game species and do like a, a simple like salt and pepper sear you know what does it taste like what would it pair well with and then and kind of curating and designing this recipe for like a like a really like four star meal not saying that i could ever you, cook at four star level cook, but i was about to ask you like could you cook a four star meal i feel like you can i could try <laughs> um i don't know how good it would end up being but i in my head that is my idea yeah right so for example with these clapper rails oh and the other thing is i want to make it like a little bit relevant to the habitat that they're in right so clapper rails salt marsh right they eat a lot of crustaceans um they tend to like they're in these really salty habitats so i'm thinking clapper rail skin on because if you're i mean controversial with a crustacean eating bird but skin on because if you're skinning your birds stop uh serum really really high heat um in the pan so like we'll do breast and leg attached because there's no breast meat on a rail really it's just all leg um, and then do like a Pontchartrain style sauce, so like mushroom cream sauce with some lump crab meat as like a little nod to them in their crustacean diet. Yeah. Uh-huh. And serving it with, um, like pickle weed or sea beans, which is a really common wild edible in their habitat that is, um, evergreen. You can, it's a succulent, so you can harvest it <clears throat> year round. Really, really prolific. Um, salty. And it tastes like a, like a dill pickle. So you blanch it uh, and wash it a lot to get all the salt, you know, that salty salt flavor off of it because they're very salty. And then dress it with some lemon or something. And then you have like this, I, I almost want to call it like clapper rail pontchartrain in situ, you know, like you're harvesting hey, everything get, from that ecosystem. Get the crabs. Yeah. Get the blue crabs from the marsh that you got the clapper from. Yeah. I mean, it's crab season right now. We totally could. <laughs> that sounds like a really cool, like not just a video opportunity, just really cool in general to do. Right. I just, I don't know. I think this is, this is something that uh, I haven't shared a lot on <clears throat> like my like socials, but um, I'm really starting to get into like wild foraging again. Right. I was super into it in college. Um like right with right when I was starting to do field work, I would try to identify all the wild edibles and like just try everything. And I'm trying, I'm just, uh, I'm trying to get back into that. 
it's so much fun, but it's a lot of work. You know what this and... is called? This is called culinary ecology. <laughs> Ooh, write that down. <laughs> That's it. the name of the show. What you call it. <laughs> That's the name of the show. <laughs> oh, it's gonna happen. <laughs> It'd be really easy, you know, yeah. like filming that whole experience. Go out, harvest rails, go catch blue crabs, film all that. You honestly can just do it on a phone and do it, you know, vertical style, like for Instagram. Do like a three. Oh, we're more bougie video. than that. We could do we'll like take a my cinematic, we'll take my crappy camera, <laughs> cinematic uh, video, but that's more effort. Um, we probably should do it like full, full fledged 4K, um, just because it's like just really cool. <laughs> yeah, if you're gonna put in the effort, I feel like it's a completely cool um, idea. I don't never heard of anybody talk about this. Yeah, I mean, it's not like a. Like, it's not. It's probably been done. Before, been done by like, indigenous people for sure. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I think that's part of why I like getting back into foraging, and because yeah. like I, I feel like hunting and foraging for wild edibles. It's like a knowledge that's been lost mm-hmm. to modern humans, um, with the exception of you know these indigenous groups. And this is by no means me claiming like I'm like identifying with the culture of indigenous peoples. I'm white. I'm white as fuck. <laughs> um, but I have a deep appreciation for their perspective on like wild, just on food in general, but like wild foods. Um, because everything had more meaning. Yeah. And I don't think the purpose of food is just to taste good. Or just to sustain you, I think it's much higher than that. Yeah. Um, Connecting you to Mother Earth. Yeah. And like, I'm not a spiritual person, but I will say that like these processes and like there is definitely something deeper. There's something more profound about taking that game bird or that venison that you harvested and you put in the effort and the time to do and then pairing it with. You know, it doesn't have to be all wild foraged vegetables, but pairing it in a way where you're like, this makes sense ecologically. Right. Like things that grow together, go together. That's a common phrase in like, um, like the gardening and foraging world. Right. <clears throat> so like. I think it's a very human, just a human thing. We're yeah. all, we're, we're all indigenous somewhere in the world. At some point, it would have been Africa, <laughs> mitochondrial Eve, yeah. Africa. Oh, but I think it's a but, your longing for that connection is. I think it's very human in general. Yeah, and it's I don't know this idea of this like kind of goofy TV show. I mean, like goofy in the sense that it's like two buddies going out and hunting and wanting to experiment with with food mm-hmm. um, has this like much more profound deeper meaning at least to me um, and a conservation and, I mean, message and a conservation message it's like every aspect of me rolled into one this this <laughs> idea culinary ecology um, your culinary uh, ecology and you should like change your uh instagram user name to culinary ecologist if you could ever actually pursue some of this stuff oh i totally would this is absolutely 100 percent after my PhD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, uh, that, except that's a niche I'm totally that down to film or hunts. That's a niche Sorry. that hasn't been filled yet, as far as I know. 
you know, social media. But yeah, doing uh, something like that with our rail hunt um, is very doable, and we're going to do it. Okay. We got to figure out when when does rail season open? There was an early, was there an early season? Uh, so there's an early season for um, for clappers, kings, and soras that are on the coast, right? Those are really going to be the only places you're going to find them. Um, and purple gallinals, common gallinals. And then like the main rail season, and it's short, is November 4th to December 27th. Gotcha. And the big, big issue with that is your only super productive days are going to be where you either have a full moon or a new moon because that's when the tides are the greatest and you need to go during high tide. So it's kind of crapshoot. They're not as spread out. Yeah, they're not as spread out. They're easier to find. That being said, you're going to go out with a rail biologist who has spent years <laughs> trying to find these things. Pretty sure we'll get some rails. I'm pretty sure we'll find some. I'm it, there's it's always shocking to me if I go to a salt marsh on the Texas coast <laughs> and I don't find a clapper rail. Mm-hmm. They will use the crappiest, smallest amount of habitat. Yeah. Well, and then okay, so here's the here's the I guess downside to it. Is we're gonna be eating all of these birds, right? And they're also going into my research. So we're going to eat them. And then I'm going to find out just how much mercury I ate. <laughs> you know, the biggest, but I'm cool with that. The biggest hurdle for rail hunting is finding places to do it where it's legal. Oh my God, yeah. We have all this public marsh uh, here on the Texas coast, Anahuac, McFadden, Texas Point. But most of those areas are designated for, for ducks, pretty much ducks only. You mm-hmm. know, like hunting out there is very limited. You have to get out of there at a certain time you can't walk around freely um because you don't run into duck hunters so it's that's the biggest challenge we gotta figure out yeah and that's something that i'm hoping my permits will come in um because then we can schedule certain days in the season um during the week where duck hunters aren't going to be there right Right? and then we would schedule them directly um and that would be a privilege that is like really only given for research that is not something that anybody just like anybody can do um and that's why i have to have you know extra permits to do it um so that's one way we could potentially get around that is just like i i need those permits to get amended and you know turned in um and that's in the process i mean that might be another couple weeks um and then the other one is Matagorda Island WMA. They don't specify whether or not you can hunt rails there, but it's accessible only by boat, right? Um, and there are people that I know <laughs> that can charter us over there. Okay. Um, and then the Bayside, um, obviously you do the check station and you walk in, right. but it's not you're not limited to the number of hunters because not as many people are hunting the bayside and that's where all the rails are going to be i got you so i feel like that right now is our biggest possibility and then like the texas point area although that's not a huge study area for my system um great habitat there it's great habitat one of the last strongholds for diamondback terrapins 
Yeah. Ooh, did I tell you that I saw Diamondback Terrapin at uh, Horseshoe Marsh? No, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was the day after uh, you were there. Um, we were checking out the other side of the marsh. So typically, um, Horseshoe Marsh is this big salt marsh on, um, well, it's a brackish marsh, so there's some freshwater parts uh, on the Bolivar Peninsula. And there's an east side and a west side. Uh, and I typically sample on the east side because it's easier to access. But we went over to the west side where there was a lot more, you know, pockets of open water. And saw a little white head pop up. That's so cool. It's like, I'm not surprised dang. they're there. That's that's some really good marsh. But they're not well documented there, I don't think. I'd have to look at INAT. But I don't remember ever seeing, like, records of there. Because if you type in Diamondback Terrapin for Texas, there's, like, a bunch of observations down around Cor- Corpus or Matagorda. And then there's all of my observations, which are all obscured um, further north uh, around Texas Point. Um, and there's a lot of yeah. gaps between because a lot of the marsh has been so altered. <clears throat> yeah, and this might be this might be one of the spots where they were reintroduced because didn't they have like a, a hatching effort at Houston Zoo or something? I'm never, I don't recall that, no. Maybe but I'm maybe, thinking of a different may, species. It's possible. I've never heard... Um, you know, a lot of conservation for terrapins is still um, kind of in the works. Still a lot of yeah. There's a couple. Uh, uh, UH clearly. Oh, there's actually quite a bit on Galveston. Yeah, yeah. Galveston Island has a good population. The state park. Yeah, there. and this would be, I mean, a quarter mile <laughs> mm-hmm. from from that. So right. that's kind of surprising that they're not seen on the peninsula more often. Yeah. Peninsula. Um, I guess yeah, they would they would have that marsh and then the Bolivar Flats marsh, but that I, I swear they're not there. I don't know if that jetty... Bolivar Flats might be too salty. It it changes so frequently too. I can. Um, I always wonder how the effects of that jetty on like a species like that. I don't know if they would affect yeah or not, but <clears throat> they've definitely. But they've also just been over over harvested in many areas and never mm. recovered. You know. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. Let's talk about stuff you've been up to that is um, aside from work and research. Aside from work and research. Well, this is related to work, I guess, but you went to Brazil. That was really cool. Yeah. That was kind of work. Um, Yeah. So I'm still traveling. I try to go to at least one international trip a year because, I mean, I want to travel while I'm young. Life is short. Right? I don't want to... I don't want to be old and, uh, you know, struggling to get around and do all these cool things. Yeah. I, you know, so I went to Brazil. Um, It was kind of related to work. So one of my chapters for my dissertation, I was um, presenting at the Ornithological Congress of the Americas, um, which was being held in Southern Brazil this year. And we ended up let me see. So it was myself, um, the vice president of the Association of Field Ornithologists, um, Matt Schumar. He's great. Uh, my committee member, Jen Smith um, from UTSA, who is this fantastic urban ecologist. Um, and then Patrick Keenan, who uh, is essentially this like field methodology guru. Um, and he is a member of AFO and uh, essentially runs the Avenet um, 
field supply store, uh, which is like research researchers go there like crazy. It's like the place to get your your bird supplies. Um, so I was going down with all of these really cool people, and we decided we're all birders. Let's just go down a week early and bird southern Brazil. And dude, I never wanted to come back to the U.S. It was so nice. Pretty incredible. South America is so cool. Yeah. Southern Brazil, <laughs> when people think of Brazil, they're, they're automatically going to think of the Amazon. But where you were at was quite a bit different, right? Oh, it was cold. But culturally, <laughs> it was very cold. Culturally, ecologically, it probably felt more like Europe than anything else, right? Yeah, super European. Yeah. <laughs> um, super European. Um, so one, the first thing is we got down there and it was like pleasant temperatures. And then that first night we got uh, freezing rain warnings on our phone. And that was the last thing I expected for my first trip to Brazil was like, oh, there's a potential for like ice and snow. Um but in southern Brazil, I mean, we were about the same distance from the equator uh, in southern Brazil that I am in Texas in my everyday life. So winter in southern Brazil is very similar to winter in Texas, just a little wetter. Um, then the other big thing was uh, you had kind of pockets of habitat as opposed to like big contiguous rainforests and savannas. Right. <laughs> So we had um, like these evergreen coniferous forests up in the mountains. Oh, and then cool. you got these like transitional rolling hills that are like deciduous, um, like deciduous pompous grassland. And then oaks. you have the, a lot of oaks. Uh, honestly, I don't think I could tell you. <laughs> you're probably just no. uh, amazed by the avian diversity to look at the plant yeah i mean except for the araucaria trees which are these massive super distinctive trees that look kind of like a stick of broccoli they have a very long straight trunk and then they branch out at the top and have these big fruits that birds and howler monkeys just love um except for those i really did not do a lot of plant identification down there and i regret that but you i mean in general though you appreciated the the different habitats like the the grasslands are the grass is the is the pampas grass pampas grass mm -hmm. right. is it pampas or pampas how do people say it i say pampas i think i say um, pampas i've always said it that's how i say it in my head but i've never i haven't actually verbalized it very much so like when i said it it sounded weird <laughs> it's P -A -M -P -A -M. yeah i'm also going to say yeah p-a-m-p-a-s <laughs> I pronounce it pompous, but I have no idea how you actually pronounce it. So. We're learning about it in uh, ecology, like rangeland ecology. Like we're learning about like grasslands of the world. It seems like a really cool ecosystem. Oh, it was so cool. Is the grass as tall as like the, you know, the ornamental pompous that you see here in the States no. that people plant? Is it much shorter? No, I mean, um, probably thigh high, the actual main it's still, like, it's a tall grass. of the plant. It's tall, yeah, it's a tall like, grass. Looks like um, a field of switchgrass or or blue stem or something. Yeah, it looks very similar to a field of blue stem. Okay. And so it's it's bunch it's a bunch grass too, right? It's a bunch grass. Mm -hmm. Are there any like unique grassland birds? 
down there? Oh, there's a ton. So Greater Rhea, I got to see Wild Rhea's, um, which are those, are... those are rat ratites? Yeah, yeah they're ratites, so they're in the same uh, um, order. No, they're not in the same order. Sub-order. They're in the same super, super order okay. as um, <laughs> ostriches, emus, and cassowaries. So essentially, cool. <laughs> they look like a, like a South American ostrich. Smaller, big, like obviously smaller than an ostrich, but like how how big though? Uh, emu size. Okay, so, so smaller than an ostrich. Pretty um, serious. That's a big. Yeah, bird. big birds. <laughs> um, I got to see. Yeah, so <laughs> trumpeters, which are, uh, you're a waterfowler, so you'll appreciate this. Um, the biggest member of Anseriformes. So the biggest family, uh, the biggest, sorry, member of the order of ducks and geese and swans is about a 15 pound gigantic, like it kind of <laughs> looks like a goose. It kind of looks like a crane. It kind of looks like a, like a Frankenstein monster. <laughs> and it has this tiny little hooked bill and like a, a goose-like body and like the thickest chunkiest legs I've ever seen. They're super cool. Wait, what's it called again? Uh, Screamers. Screamers. This is a southern screamer. I gotta look this up. Um, and then I guess one of the other really cool wow. like taxonomic things. That's a yeah, right. That's a it's a waterfowl. It's, it's not a natadae. Not an, it's an air and seriform. Yeah. It's Amhyman. It's day. even in the same order as ducks and geese. I know. I mean, it's crazy. When I look, okay, now that I'm looking at it, like standing out in like a wetland, it you know kind of makes sense, but still a very bizarre. That's a cool bird. So we saw screamer tracks in the uh, in the salt marsh um, mud because, of course, I was going to be checking out the salt marshes in Brazil. Um, Are they similar? And they're actually really similar. Yeah. Um, and the screamer tracks, the webbed feet are about the same size as my hand. They're Holy huge. Um, so they were really cool. And then we got to see red-legged serimas, which are these um, kind of the South American equivalent of secretary birds. Um, so they have... Um, they're basically the last living terror birds. Um, so they're in the same order and family as, you know, forest raucous, gastornis, these big terror birds. Um, and they have that sickle claw on their middle toe, like velociraptors. <clears throat> and they hunt herps mostly. They're going to like grab them, pull them down with that claw, pick them up in their bill and throw them to kill them. They're really cool. Man. The diversity of birds in the world is kind of mind-boggling, and how how it's, so many of them uh, are still. I don't. I'm trying not to say primitive now, like because it's just not a good way of talking about evolutionary biology. But uh, they, they they look like what we imagine dinosaurs to be, you know. Oh yeah, primitive birds based off of like fossils and stuff. Yeah, definitely, definitely very dinosaurian. Bipedal. You know? you know, walking around. Uh, walking around with those velociraptor claws, you know? <laughs> I'm obsessed with um, cassowaries. I, I have to see a cassowary. 
In fact, Ooh, yeah. that's my number one goal to go to Australia, which is weird to say because I've always wanted to go there to see all the snake diversity in the crocs. But like seeing a cassowary walking through a forest or down a beach, that will have a greater impact on my life than any other animal, I think. Depends on how close you get to it, but yes. Like, I'm not like, I want to see elephants and all that, but I don't even think that would have as much of a an effect on me, like emotionally as seeing a cassowary. Because a cassowary, I feel like from that point on, like, I'm going to have this, you know, this picture in my head of, I was basically seeing this bird. It put me in the mindset of like being around a hundred million years ago or something, you know, it's just oh, so yeah. prehistoric looking. I, I'm totally there with you. <clears throat> yeah. And then getting, a know, picture just... of them, getting a nice picture of one would be like the coolest thing ever. Well, and their feathers are probably very similar to what the feathers of dinosaurs were. Yeah. Right. So can you so understand, these... can you describe <laughs> ratites and like their link in bird evolution? Is that something that you, yeah, you can yeah. explain? I can do that. Like, um, help like, people understand what like cassowaries and rays and all that. Yeah, so when we talk about ratites, um, we're talking about this super group of birds called the Paleognathidae. Um, paleog or Paleognathae, sorry. Um, these are birds that have a mouth and skull shape basically like a dinosaur um so paleo meaning old nath meaning jaw they have old jaws and so when you look at dinosaur skulls right so your classic t-rex skull or even better if you've seen um like the velociraptor skulls they have what looks like almost a beak right and they have very similar um like musculature and bone structure in their jaws to dinosaurs than they do to more modern heavy air quotes their birds right um so ratites are all flightless um and their feathers their body structure is probably the closest that we'll have to understanding the major um like theropod dinosaurs Right. So these are going to be like your raptors, your rexes, you know, the big ones. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they have super muscular legs. They're all really powerful runners. Um, none of them are predatory. So they're oh, all interesting. Yeah. I knew about cassowaries, but I didn't realize that was all of them. Yeah, so they're all kind of unfortunate grazers. I wish they were out there slaughtering right? stuff. Oh, it'd be super cool. I wouldn't put it past an ostrich. Um, and they're definitely opportunistic. I'm sure they'll take like a mouse or a small bird if they can grab it. But um, yeah, for the <clears> most <throat> part, they're grazers eating, you know, grasses, tubers, roots, seeds. The uh, fruit, fruit is huge for cassowaries. Yeah. Their feet are um, and, are pretty phenomenal to me. Yeah. And they have these, other than ostriches, ostriches only have two toes. Um, but all of the others have these feet that look ex exactly like the T-Rex track from Jurassic Park. Yeah. Or those therapy um, tracks at uh, Dinosaur Valley State Park. 
Yeah, or that if you want to be more scientific and modern. <laughs> they look the same. I saw, a, a, I was doing a, a wetland survey on this private ranch in South Texas one time. And there was a, uh, it had to have been an emu track, some private property that had emus in the sand. And mm-hmm. it was the coolest thing ever. It was this huge bird track. And it's just like a dinosaur track in modern day. Yeah. I mean, birds are dinosaurs, man. They're yeah, the only literally. living group of dinosaurs. I think a lot of people think we're being like metaphorical or something. We're being literal. When we say no, like dinosaurs. Yeah. When we're talking about like what we would call dinosaurs, it's as a group. <laughs> it's a group, right? And it's not like a, it's also what we would call non monophyletic, which means it's like this big mixed up group of a whole right. bunch of different lineages. Um, but one of those lineages is the theropods and birds are theropods. Yeah. So if we're going to say, you know, birds are in this lineage and what we think of as dinosaurs evolved into birds, then what we think of as dinosaurs has to include birds. Right. They're the the only group in that clade or whatever you want to call it, the larger group that didn't die out. Yeah. Basically, yeah. Yeah, and there might be a couple other groups in there that like, yeah. you know, split and, you know, survived a little bit longer than we thought, but... I guess crocodilians you know, too. Crocodilians too. Are yeah, but how did we ever out. consider crocodilians dinosaurs? <laughs> They were, I guess they were branched off the archosaurs, but I forget where archosaurs fit into the broader picture. I think crocodilians... I think birds, birds are also archosaurs, no? Yep. Birds are archosaurs. So you have the archosaur clade, which They're is above dinosaurs. Right? Uh, so this would be your archosaurs or like your crocodiles, dinosaurs, and everything that came from dinosaurs. Right, yeah. Okay. Right? Um... So I think you have your archosaur clade. There is a common ancestor between dinosaurs and crocodiles that is like the first archosaur. Right. And then your crocodilians diverged and dinosaurs diverged down the other path. Okay, so they dinosaurs and archosaurs and, and crocodilians were different branches of the archosaur tree. Clade, yeah. Clade, yeah. yeah. From uh, from my understanding. No, again, that, that sounds right, because I remember... Um, I remember from vertebrate natural history class learning mm-hmm. that. And I've always, you know, when I talk about crocodilians, I love to tell people crocodilians and birds are very close relatives, but yeah. birds are dinosaurs. Crocs are not dinosaurs. They're argus- mm-hmm. archosaurs. From my understanding, right? Like I'm not a taxonomist by any means. Right. So I, I'm more than happy to be corrected on that. If someone Somebody wants to chime in. Very but... angry right now, listening to us talk about, then stuff. please chime in and <laughs> correct me i want to learn i think the big oh. picture um for listeners though that 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 is it though you know a, a big picture um yeah so a lot to learn about those those different groups yeah big picture um your archosaurs include your dinosaurs and everything that came from them and your crocodilians including birds yeah um, and that includes birds. Yeah. And there's a couple really cool um, things in common that they have. So um, there's like their heart structure is really similar. Um, their palate structure. So their skulls are really similar too. Um, so if you look at a, you know, crocodile skull or an alligator skull, um, the structure and the basic structures, there are fairly similar to the basic structures in birds. Right. Um. 
I would say, you know, as as we've gotten into like more modern times, as they as they've uh, been more distant from each other or more diverged, we're definitely losing some of those similarities. Right. But like in general, I mean, like yeah, I'm not going to compare like a, oh yeah, some behavior and uh, sort of rearing behaviors and. Yeah, and that's really unique amongst the reptiles to just the crocodiles and birds. It's like parental care is really big. Vocal um, vocalizations. Yep. Separate crocodiles from uh from the other reptiles, generally speaking. Yeah. Um, complex vocalization songs, even. <laughs> yeah. Like, isn't it what is a caiman species? I've never heard of that actually, but maybe. I... Maybe it's a caiman, caiman or crocodile that has like a a song, like a projection song for like when it's mating or wants to mate. Um, I've never heard it put that way, but yeah, they definitely vocalize. Maybe not. I mean, like it's, <laughs> and maybe it may not be as like pretty a, as a song uh, from birds. Well, I would call it a song. Oh, there's some song. trashy bird songs. <laughs> like, I I will tell you, like a, like the bellowing of a big alligator. I've heard that plenty of times. Right. I would say that's a lot prettier than uh, than like the song of most some birds. I, don't, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but like I'm trying to think. There's some owls. ducks. There's some ducks that have a kind of a lame voice. I don't know. Oh, well, then you have vultures, which just don't have a voice. They have no vocal cords. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, makes sense. Yep. Vultures, storks, um, so they communicate with bill clacking. I got you. And hissing. So you know how I've been learning about um, some of my heritage. Um, one of my mm-hmm. Apache elders, he's telling me all the different meanings that different birds bring. <clears throat> and it's very sad. <laughs> the bird nerd oh, I... me is disappointed by certain aspects of Apache spirituality. <laughs> like owls are bad. They mean death. <laughs> I love owls. Well, that's everywhere. Yeah. That's everywhere. That's a general. Yeah, owls have always gotten a bad reputation. I don't know why. Yeah. Except in um in like Anglo-Saxon Anglo-Saxon culture where they're like the smartest of the smart or the wise, you know, the wise. Yeah. And they're not. Owls have owls are the definition. And I will like I will write this in my obituary and like I will say this till the day I die. Owls are the definition of lights on no one's home. <laughs> there's nothing going on behind those eyes. I've got to appreciate owl diversity as much. I never got in my way to look for them like at night or anything. I need to. Dude, <laughs> should, uh, I should go owling with me. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh, I see them just kind of opportunistically, like usually it's a barred owl, some bottom land in the daytime. They seem much more mm-hmm. active in the daytime than other owls. You you want to know why? I feel like I've heard, I think I might. Yes, I want to know why. I think I might know why, but I want to hear it before I say it. Okay. So, barred owls have a lot of range and niche overlap with other owl species, and they are oftentimes prey for great horned owls. So, if they can be more plastic, they can adjust what time that they're most active calling, hunting, stuff like that. They're going to be less at risk. And that's just a theory. Um, but great horns tend to be calling and hunting later at night. Bards tend to be um, more crepuscular right at dawn and dusk. 
Um, and it could also be to do with like their prey, um, like their prey preferences too, right? Yeah. Great horns eat a lot more mammals. Um, and obviously most small mammals are nocturnal. Um, bard tend to eat a lot more, um, surprisingly crustaceans. Um, they eat a lot of crayfish uh, and frogs, herps and stuff. And so herps tend to be more crepuscular. Bards are going to be more crepuscular. But it is theorized, too, that um, it's to help with predation from great horns. It's like a temporal. It's a really interesting study. Yeah. In areas where they overlap with great horns versus areas where they don't or vice versa. Like, what are the what are the call times? Like, what are the activity right. levels? I don't know. I always see a, a, a nice barred owl out at Lick Creek College Station. It's a good place to see them. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Out there. Last time we went to, together, they were calling all over the place. Yeah, so barred yeah. owls are pretty frequent. They're also the easiest bird to uh, to mimic. So you can you can do like the who cooks for you call yeah. and they'll respond. That's cool. Um, um did you want to did you have anything else about Brazil? I really took us off topic on Brazil. Yeah, well if we want to keep talking about Brazil, I'm more than happy to. Some of the different birds you saw there and different places you were you went like different habitats and stuff. Yeah. Okay. So we kind of started um so we flew into Porto Alegre, which <laughs> is on the coast, and we drove up the mountains to um this little town called Ferropia, which is very European and very fancy. Like it was the first place in Latin America that I've ever been where I was like, whoa, this is Europe, <laughs> you know? Is it uh, Portuguese culture? Yeah, so Portuguese, which, like, I have a decent understanding of Spanish. I don't speak it well. And then, like, hearing Portuguese, everything is, it sounds so different to me. Yeah. So I struggled a lot. Um yeah, so uh, I drove all around Ferropia, and driving there was easy, so much easier than in the States. Um, and so the first night that we were there, we were like, let's go try to find some owls. Why not? Um, and we ended up finding um, a barn owl, right? Super cool. Love hearing those guys. Yeah. And as the barn owl was going off, uh, we heard a tawny-browed owl, which would turn out to be one of the rarer birds that we found that entire trip. So for the state of Rio Grande do Sul, let me look up uh, exactly how many records there are in eBird. But I believe it's less than 40. Oh, wow. Yeah, and that's definitely because that's the least birded state in Brazil. Like Rio Grande do Sul has very few birders. That's exciting going there as a birder. Yeah, it was super cool. Yeah. I'm, um, it's, it's cool to me that you got to experience uh, an area like that because like, the dream is to go to the Amazon, but um, you know that region of the world has a lot more than just the Amazon. Yeah, it's you're so right there. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> it was so different than anything I was expecting um, and so different than any of the other 
like places that I've been that were right. in Latin America. I mean, I've been to um, Central America where it's really hot, very tropical. And Panama. I've been to Panama. Yeah, Panama. Um, I've been to the Caribbean where, again, it's like fairly tropical. Right. And then down here, it was like the subtropics, but it's the opposite. You know, it's the habitat is very similar um, to a lot of places that we would have up in the States, like, like post Oak Savannah type into grasslands or what state would you it, compare to most? Do you think good question. Oklahoma, Oklahoma it might be mountains. a good one, but like mountainous Oklahoma, you know, like more legit mountains. Yeah. Yeah. Or in California, 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 like Northern California. That makes sense. Right. Where you're kind of going between like mountains and coast. I got you. Um, it was it was a huge culture shock. Yeah, I'm so jealous. I every year I'm like, all right, I'm going to take an international trip. And since I went to Belize last time, I haven't gone anywhere. Um, I was dead set on going to Australia. I like bought my plane tickets and everything, and some of the work came up. I had to get my refund. I was mm. so close; I could taste it. <laughs> But it wasn't a very well planned trip. I literally just woke up one day, like it was around the new year. I was like, I gotta, mm-hmm. I gotta go there. I'm just gonna buy tickets right now. And I found cheap tickets. And uh but I didn't like make sure I had, you know, uh my work schedule would work with it and all that. But shooting for next year. I just I think Australia's on my list soon too. So uh keep me posted. Yeah. Because it's on my list. Next year, so I'm going back to Mexico in March. Um, and I'm burning Western Mexico, Oaxaca, Chiapas, um, which is going to be super fun. Mm-hmm. Um, there's about, so that part of Mexico is maybe the most, uh, or has the highest endemism of bird species um, in the new world. Wow. Right? It's just like everything's Mexico. small pocket. Everything is a small pocket. The herp endemism is high too, just because the the mountain range is there yeah it's super cool um so definitely into that where did you go Um, to mexico the first time i went last august i went to the yucatan and went to you know both both sides of the yucatan and cozumel that that had uh, somewhat similar to panama right uh panama was cooler (laughs) i would um, imagine panama's diversity was higher but like you're yeah, in Panama's diversity was higher, broad, but it was you're in like rainforest. Yep, tropical broadleaf. When I think of Mexico, I have almost zero interest in going to the to the rainforest in Mexico. I really want to go to the mountains. That's where all the really unique plant and animal diversity is. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, the rainforests <laughs> in Yucatan are beautiful. They're super yeah. cool. Yeah. And I got to do some really amazing things, like um, like going to go see ruins and swimming in cenotes and right um i got to swim with whale sharks which was beyond amazing um i don't know i don't know if this is like a podcast safe story but uh this is a safe space for anything <laughs> okay well no, but th- if you don't say something you'll regret because i don't feel like editing i'm, I'm so far i, nah, I have fine. no editing to do <laughs> um i might have one thing that i'll let you decide uh, so everyone knows like Montezuma's revenge, right? The traveler's sickness. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, 
Every single person, every single person I've talked to that has eaten food in Tulum, Mexico, this is a warning to all the listeners out there. Every single person I know has gotten really sick. Really? Yeah. So I got that. I think I'll avoid it. I don't like being sick. Oh, dude. I just on a trip. (laughs) It was awful. You, this is like, I can't imagine people with IBS. Yeah, no, I'm screwed. (laughs) If there's like, no, if there is like, if what I experienced was a small portion of what you've had to do like daily, I'm so sorry. That is like painful suffering. Well, you know, I think IBS actually got worse after I went to Belize and drank water straight from a stream in the Maya mountains for a week straight. (laughs) I think I got into yeah, that, parasites, and I think it really wreaked havoc on my gut biome. That would do it. Yeah. Um, so I, I got really bad um, traveler's diarrhea, stomach cramps, like sweating, awful, awful stuff. The night before we were supposed to go swimming with whale sharks which is like the one thing I wanted to do on the coast. I was like, this is a once in a lifetime experience. I really want to do it. So I loaded up on Imodium. I took like half of a pack of Imodium (laughs) that morning and we got to the boat and, and I, you know, I was like, this is going to be a six hour boat ride. And I haven't been able to leave the toilet for more than half an hour for the past day. That's brutal. And you know what? Somehow I survived. And you had a good and time. I had a great time. I got to swim with whale sharks. Um, I didn't shit myself in the boat. <laughs> I did. We did stop on an island and I ran to a bathroom. But um, it was just, it was phenomenal. And I like, I think about like, where I was at mentally the day before and all of that went away, even though my body was suffering so much. You got to be present for the experience mentally. The absolute majesty of seeing a whale shark less than two feet from you, like and seeing it like rise up from the depths and seeing its eye, which is, you know, the size of a basketball. Like you forget everything else right like you you like you're there and you're just like holy sh- like wow that's awesome i have not had it's an experience like that highly recommend i'm not a marine biology person i'm not an ocean person and that could have turned me yeah it was so cool awesome yeah I'd, i've always appreciated all the documentaries where they're filming whale sharks but can imagine seeing one in person i'll say it is this big touristy thing so there's like 80 boats on like these 10 sharks right um so you have to be very careful the coast guard is there um to like supervise because you only have two people swimming with a shark at any time you can't touch it you can't get in, unless it touches you um but you're touch, supposed to it would touch away. me it would touch me for sure <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> Oh yeah, no, that's a good thing they have um, those kind of that kind of supervision. You can imagine a situation like that becoming unethical pretty quick. 
Absolutely. And you're limited to, you know, a minute to a minute and a half mm-hmm. um, in the water at a time with the shark, and then you're supposed to move on. Right. Um, but I'll tell you, like, we did two or three jumps when I was there, I think three jumps per person. And it was, I mean, if I spent five minutes in the water with them, it was worth it. Right. Yeah, man, I can't imagine that. I always, I'm always fearful that, you know, if I have an experience like that, I'll be having like an IBS issue and it's just going to like ruin the experience. <laughs> but I guess at some point. I can tell you <laughs> the experience from experience. Is so experience. Yeah. <laughs> the experience is so As... profound that you for, forget. My body completely shut down and said, yeah. you should experience this. Yeah, that's good. Like, that's my fear of going to the Amazon. I'm, I'm, I know I want to be sick the whole time for the Amazon. And I'm like, am I even going to enjoy it? I'm pretty sure I will. So uh, my roommate went to the guy on an Amazon um, for his research uh, on for fish. Yeah. Enjoy Looking at niche, that's... Yep, niche overlap in uh, peacock basses. Dream come true for a fisherman. <laughs> what he's doing right um and he lived you know he lived remotely for three months you know in hammocks eating and drinking like the water there it and he he said it was bad for about a week and a half and then his stomach adjusted so i think it's possible i think it's possible to do yeah keith i have one bar left um so let's go ahead and end it before i get because if it like stops recording i don't want to lose the recording Absolutely. Um, so it's also yeah. been about an hour and a half. So. That was a good one. I, I liked it. I liked it. Um, it's very conversational. Let's... Was, yeah, we've we've already done yeah. the deep stuff with, with our first episode together. So yeah, I'm gonna go in in it there. Thanks, Keith.